SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 39 with guest Kent Teagles. Our guest today is Kent Teagles. Kent is a mentor with Develop Mentor. Welcome, Kent. Hey, Greg. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. The, uh, I'm really pleased to have Kent back on the show. We had Kent in show three where we had a few audio problems back in that uh, version. So I, I'm really pleased to uh, had decided to get a few people back on the show after a while. And so I, I was determined Kent was going to be the first one of those. Well, I'm happy to be back, Greg. Uh, you have a great show, and always look forward to hearing it. And to uh, be, be asked back is quite an honor. So, Excellent. happy to be here. Now, what uh, I suppose we've been through in the previous one a fairly detailed background, but maybe for those that haven't heard that, just a, a quick summary of your background and uh, and your current position. Sure. Well, I'm uh, currently with Developmenter. I'm the uh, database curriculum lead. But basically what that boils down to is I spend most of my time talking and writing about SQL Server. So we're uh, right now we're teaching a lot of SQL Server 2005 classes. We just got our SQL Server 2008 uh, first look class up and online. Looking forward to teaching that starting in October. So that keeps me pretty darn busy, I tell you, that's for sure. Yeah, that's great. In fact, uh, I've been doing the same myself a bit where sort of running around the country doing uh, readiness events and things all over the place with SQL Server 2008. Um, one thing that I should actually throw some information in about at this point too, uh, a thing that's been keeping me very, very busy, uh, we've got there's a new Microsoft uh, Certified Masters program for uh, SQL Server. And, uh, yeah, I've been involved in sort of building content for that and uh, for one of the weeks of that. And uh, for those that come along later in the year, in uh, October or something, uh, I can just encourage them that it looks like a really, really good course uh, from what I've seen from the others as well. And uh, I'm sort of really looking forward to uh, presenting a week of that later in the year. Yeah, I, I, I hope to get an opportunity to go see that. Uh, probably going to be busy, but if I can get a chance, I, I certainly would like to go see what uh, what's being covered there. Yeah, it's a, a well. Basically, I'm I'm allocating myself about six to eight days to build every day of content. So, uh, it's um, yeah, it's it's been interesting, sort of getting into it in a, a lot more depth in some of the areas than uh, than uh, what I had looked and looked at in sort of previous times. Um, what they've done is they've broken out uh, the sort of the technical content out of the Microsoft Certified Architect program. And so I think the idea is that you'll, you can now do the, the masters as one sort of uh, level of certification, and that's the technical content. And then you can do a sort of another two weeks or so of architecture work uh, to make it arrive at the sort of certified architect level. But uh, I don't know if that part's available yet. So, But anyway, look, it, it's interesting. Well, 
uh, where it's hopefully all hitting. Someday we'll see a, yeah, hopefully someday we'll see a data architecture program coming out of Microsoft because you know, software architecture is one thing, but not a lot of people are really, really good at data architecture, and I'm yeah. kind of hoping that they'll take the opportunity to, to go that direction. Yeah, that's great. And so what are the main things at the moment that uh, you're sort of really busy with yourself? Well, mostly mostly working with what's new in 2008. Uh, Niels Berglund, my cohort, and I divvied up all the all the changes that apply to developers between us. And he, he took responsibility for the areas he's interested in, and I took responsibility for the for the stuff I like. So I've been working a lot with the business intelligence stuff, and I've been working an awful lot with the spatial stuff, just uh, trying to get my head wrapped around what all you can do and what what features are offered and what's not there, and how do you how do you actually practically use that when you're building spatially aware applications? And I think it's it's been fun, uh, it's been entertaining. Sometimes it's been frustrating. But uh, overall, I'm pretty impressed with that package. Yeah. And so actually, that's the topic for today, where we're going to have a talk about the spatial uh, implementation in SQL Server. And so I suppose, first up, I've come across a lot of people who think uh, that spatial isn't something that their applications would take advantage of in any way, and they think it's only very specific types of applications that would use spatial capabilities. Do you think that's the case? I think for the next, oh, probably five or six years, that might be true. Uh, it, GIS has certainly been a, a well-recognized topic, but it has definitely been a specialty topic. Now that we're seeing spatial features infiltrate into other products, I think it's just a matter of time before we get requests from users about where, where are things located next to each other uh, in space? How can I organize this data? Or how can I understand it in the spatial context? So I think it's, I think largely think it's a matter of time. And where I think the, the ultimate driver is going to come from is the business intelligence space is consumers and managers and decision makers are going to want to understand, well, why are we seeing more sales in this zip code than in any other zip code? Or, uh, here in the States, our census will be coming up in about two years. There's going to be a huge amount of interest in analyzing census data and trying to make good business decisions off of it. So, you know, for for this release of SQL Server, we might very well want to look at that as being a down payment on the best is yet to come. And we'll see how we'll see where Microsoft goes with it. I think yeah. that's the best way it's, to look at it. In fact, it strikes me that um when I look at analysis services, uh, when that appeared early on, it really created another whole branch of the product. And uh, I, I've got a feeling myself that the the spatial really is another significant turning point in the product. Um, and But having built a lot of business applications over the years, I used to work uh, uh, running an ISV. I, I, sit, I sit now and I think about how many applications I built that could have taken advantage of some spatial awareness. And the irony is it's nearly every single application. Um, it and, really is, yeah. Yeah, and it, it then strikes me that if I look at how rapidly it's appeared on things like phones, uh, I, I uh, went over to the dark side and I uh, got an iPhone uh, 3G. No. 
<laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. And uh, what was what's interesting with that is that I just now completely take for granted the idea that I can pull up a map, I can pull up, ask it where something is, and then I can say, instead of having to say directions to there from and then enter the thing, I can just say from here. You know, and so on, and yeah. and just having it be aware of all those sort of things, and uh, I don't even have to tell it where it is, and so on. I, I I find that that sort of thing has just become so routine now, in phones and things. I I just have a feeling it it might actually appear faster than we imagine. I, and I I definitely think that spatial awareness in portable devices, as largely is is created a lot of the interest in it. I remember back, and this was back in 1998, and I was in Chicago, and I was trying to find a hotel, a specific hotel. I was going there for a conference. I had no idea where this hotel was, so I reached into my laptop. I pulled out my laptop, pulled out the USB antenna for MapPoint, and I fired up MapPoint to try and figure out where I was going. And I'm going, I look now, and I look at my own phone, and I go, well, gee, you know, I could have just uh, fired up my phone at that you know, today I could just fire up my phone and it would walk me there. It would give me walking directions, whereas in that point, I had to bring out a laptop and an antenna and all of that. And I had to have a lot of computational power to do a fairly simple thing. Now that we have uh, built up the server infrastructure, we have a good sense of what waypointing and GPS can do for us, it's, it's, it's a technology that has really evolved in very short time. Uh, and I, I don't see it. I don't see that curve dampening much. I think it's going to continue to evolve, and we're going to have a lot of devices that are going to be location-aware, feeding data back out, and making making their presence know, know, at least knowable to us. Uh, and certainly, you know, now that Homeland Defense and national security is such an issue, uh, being able to know where people are and where events are happening and being able to pinpoint that pretty accurately it's a huge concern. So, again, I think we have there's a lot of there's a lot of space to grow here, but uh, it's probably not going to take us a lot of time to to fill it. It's it is amazing how fast it creeps in. I, I look at uh, uh, one of the things I'm involved with is the pass organization, and um, the thing that intrigues me there, like I was sort of wondering the other day. Uh, for example, I mean, how many people are members of the organization that? there isn't a chapter within, say, 50 or 60 kilometers of them. And right. and the difference is you can now answer those sort of questions. Uh, the Where before it was just diabolical to, to answer that sort of thing. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to look at a zip code and think, or a postal code, however you want to look at it, and say, well, you know, we've got this many members in this postal code. But when you start to think that, and some of the some of the postal codes are so huge; they cover so much land area that even if you're in the same postal code, you may not be able to actually physically commute to a meeting. I also so, take some yeah. of the services for example um, for granted too. And uh, I mean, I have to admit again, I tend to use uh, Google Maps a bit, but uh, the um, as a service. But again, Live Search and uh, Live Earth can do the same sort of things. Uh, again, but the idea that I can take um, a series of addresses in a database and I can just fire them all against a web service and have them all geocoded and have it come back and tell me where they all are. Um, that, that's just completely amazing. But I, I really think where the where the sweet spot is for what SQL Server is doing 
is building the analytical applications, uh, modeling applications. There's a, there's a whole series of talks that Esri put on with Redlands University about applications for this. And every time I listen to that set of talks, I think, wow, gee, you know, we could now do this with SQL Server and we don't have to have the huge amount of money that the GIS shops are spending for their tool sets. Now, granted, we have to write some code, but for me, that's fun. You know, that's what I like doing is I like writing code. I like getting in and exploring things. But, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's I, interesting because it also means, to, to me, it sort of strikes me that it's suddenly, uh, spatial awareness for the masses too i mean that's the other thing is that um, one of the things microsoft does such a great job of is sort of commoditizing uh what otherwise were complex technologies and uh this is one that i can see very rapidly moving out of the sort of white coat brigade into uh into mainstream use yeah and i think sql server is really in a, in a lot of ways sql server has really been their way of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks and we've seen it with XML. I think we've seen it with Service Broker. Uh, we definitely have seen it with analysis services, right? Uh, that really brought BI to the masses. I think Spatial is very much in that tradition. So maybe we should then um, start to go through uh, the implementation. And so we have two new data types, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep, we've got geometry, which is good for storing 2D, basically any Cartesian plane kind of data that you'd want to store. And we have geography, which is really set up to model the Earth, if you will. It's, it does its calculations based on spherical measures, not quite spherical, but ellipsoidal, that measure, that follow the, the curvature of the Earth. Uh, very useful if you want to actually know realistic distances between things, but it's not a, it's not a perfect this is not a perfect 3D solution. It's not uh, X, Y, and Z coordinates, but it, it works well enough for terrestrial-based calculations. I think that's a really critical point, is the fact that uh, there's no height component. So when you're saying, yeah, no, there's an X, Y, and Z or X, Y, and Z thing, the, uh, basically it's only the X and Y. So it, we have positions all over the, the globe, but we don't have the height above the globe. And there's also not a 3D space for geometry. And, and there are certain applications that I can think of that, you know, 2, 2D is fine, but it would be, it would be really nice to have, uh, true support for 3D geometries. Uh, one of the, one of the, when I go out and I give a talk about the, the spatial data types, it's not just about where stuff is on Earth, but it's also taking advantage of geometry's ability to put things in relation to other things. Uh, one of the examples I give is, well, here's a collection of books, and I might want to know what books are related to each other or what books might be clustered together. So if somebody buys a book in a particular cluster, what books are close to that in some semantic dimension? Well, if we can get two semantic, you know, if we can, if we can pair off two semantic dimensions, then we can certainly use the geometry type for building those kind of relationships. And it's a, it's a maybe an atypical use of what that was intended for, but it really works quite nicely. Yeah, and I think the you also mentioned that uh, the the calculations are done uh, basically on an ellipsoid. So yeah, I think they describe it as a a squashed ellipsoid. I think squashed about one in thirty or something. I think was the the number. 
Um, in fact, so it really is very much targeted at Earth. Uh, in fact, it was funny. I was in a, a class earlier in the year, and uh, uh, no, actually, I think it was uh, one of the summits last year. And uh, a guy in the back of the room put his hand up and said, "Could I model, say, you know, Saturn with it?" And uh, uh, no, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. uh, not what the current support. Version. At least not in this version. Uh, you know, maybe by the year 2011, we're seriously thinking about now how do we map things on on the moon or on Mars, and maybe there will be, you know, non non scientific applications. Maybe there'll be industrial and business type applications for that. But today, yeah, pretty much, unfortunately, the Earth only. Yeah. And I think so. The key point there is it's not parameterized or anything like that. All the calculations are done where it pre-understands the shape of the Earth, uh, or roughly the shape right. of the Earth. And I suppose for people that um, think about it, it seems you think, well, what's the big deal? But if you're doing calculations on a sphere, uh, most people remember enough from school to work out roughly what was involved in doing a fair degree of calculations on a sphere. But if when you start doing it on a squashed ellipsoid, uh, that that's a, a very different story. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's... it's uh it's making me wonder sometimes why I went into statistics rather than geometry. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a stats guy, and that's that's what I it's what I know best about math. But there are certainly when I look at some of the some of the wild calculations that we do for projections and things like that, it hurts my head. Yeah, so I'm glad I'm glad Microsoft wrote all that stuff, and I don't have to. And I may you know I may say, well, it'd be nice if we could define other spheroids and. You know, we could map Mars and Venus, but uh, at the same time, yeah, I'm going to be happy if, if Microsoft writes the code and not me for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose another key point there is that this is shipped as a separate MSI as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and certainly the, the other nice thing is those spatial data types are available in .NET. So if, you, if you're trying to build up instances of data and work with them, hey, you know, you've got that in the common language runtime now. You don't necessarily have to have, you know, you don't even have to necessarily be in the SQL Server context. Really, the big thing you get out of SQL Server is the indexing, which sometimes and usually helps, but not always. And, of course, persistency and transactions and all the other good things that come along with SQL Server. But you're not limited necessarily to just using it in SQL Server. Yeah. No, in fact, that's a a key... That's a key point I was sort of heading down to there is the uh, the idea that they ship a sep- separate installer file that contains the assembly that has all the clever code in it that does the calculations. Uh, it's interesting that that same assembly is the one that they drop in inside, uh, effectively inside SQL Server. So, it, uh, but the nice thing is you can build it inside your own applications uh, and take advantage of the fact that somebody's done all those calculations for you. Right. I'm glad that they went that approach rather than what they did with SQL XML, where we really only have XQuery on the server side and we really don't have it on the client side. It'd be nice, you know, to see the SQL XML data type in .NET be symmetric with what's on SQL Server, but you can't win them all. And I'm happy we won the spatial ones. Yeah, no, that's good. And so the so I suppose that's a, a, the first key point here is that this is imp, these are implemented the two new data types as system CLR types. Yeah, isn't that interesting that we got this entirely new permission set called system? And you know, it's basically well, they're blessed, and you can use them. And you're going to use CLR types, and 
you know, you do a wonderful presentation called SQL CLR for the DBAs. Well, now you have you have CLR enabled data types, whether you turn it on or or not. They're there, and you use them anyway. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Is that Microsoft is so confident in the SQL CLR technology that, yep, you know what, it's there whether you uh, turn it on or not. Yeah. In fact, the other one that's implemented in this version is the hierarchy ID, and just to divert very momentarily, have you got thoughts on that one? Um, actually, if you keep an eye out on MSDN Magazine for October, I've got an article about hierarchy ID coming out using that for the bill of materials system. Yep. Have, are you right. happy with the implementation of it? Because I, I must admit, the more I look at it and play with it, the the less happy I am with how it's implemented. Yeah, that was, that's kind of been my experience, too. I guess I, I, I'm not going to say I'm unhappy with it because I'm awfully happy we have the data type. Could it use improvement? You bet, right? Uh, there's nothing There's nothing that's ever perfect in the universe. Is it, is it good and is it useful? You bet, right? It, it may have some shortcomings, but... Like a lot of things in SQL Server, this is first release. Let's give it a chance to evolve and see what happens with it. Yeah. I think the the sort of things that I find very difficult with it are uh, things that really should be atomic operations, like uh, adding a new child to a parent and things like that. The the way they get you to sort of go and find a position of to where it's got to go and then and then try and add something into that position. But then it's like, well... Yeah, but concurrency-wise, the, these things all should be a single operation. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's just enough stuff to... There's just enough interesting stuff in in the hierarchy ID to make it an interesting topic to talk about. Uh, again, uh, I think it's I think it's very useful for where it's for where it is. It's definitely more of a construct once leave it alone thing. If you can possibly do that. That's how it's most effective. And I think the same thing is true of both the geometry and the geography data types. Once you have them constructed, which getting them constructed can be fun, you tend to leave them alone, and they largely become read-only data after that point. Yeah. And I think the same is largely true of hierarchy IDs. Is once you have them constructed, it's best to leave them alone as much as you can. Yeah, in fact, I think probably the thing that I find uh, most missing with hierarchy ID is the idea of being able to do things like move a subtree, mm-hmm. where we have the entire tree at once. Yeah, where we yeah. have reparent, uh, but that only moves me; it doesn't move all my children. And uh, uh, again, when I look at the data type, though, I suppose the thing is they they can always uh, derive from it and add additional methods and things to it down the track. So I, I suppose uh, I have a feeling there'll be a lot more. It, it, out of all the, the new data types, it's the one that strikes me most as a sort of version one data type, that one. Um, I, yeah, I would, I would go along with that. I, I, might, I might say that geometry and geography are a little more evolved. You know, clearly there's things I'd like to be able to do with it, but... For the most part, since we have the since we have almost all, if not all, of the OGC methods implemented, we've got plenty of uh, non-standard methods implemented. There's very little that you can't do. Some of it's not very obvious sometimes, but for the most part, you know, I, I think it's 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 mature for version one. We'll just see where it goes. 
Yeah. So, okay, so we started saying there are two data types. So we've got geography and geometry. And geometry is basically our flat earth work. And geography is our sort of round earth or geodetic type calculations. Now, what we should probably talk about is that uh, the sorts of things that we can, like, what advantage does having a data type bring as opposed to just storing the data in some other form, maybe storing latitudes and longitudes directly in the database? Well, yeah, and I think that's, I think that's a really good question. So let's, let's do a, let's kind of walk through a mental example of this. Let's say that you are building an application to help customers find your outlet stores or your, wherever your physical brick-and-mortar stores are. Well, you can do that, and we've been doing it certainly since probably SQL Server 6.5, but we've had to store two distinct values with whatever data type we choose. We've had to store them, and then we've had to write user-defined functions or whatever it is. Maybe we write middle-tier client code, or maybe we write client-side code to do all that work. And everybody's you know, basically had to write that from scratch or go out and find the code and implement it themselves. Well, here... Now you'll have specific data types that know how to act on both the latitude and the longitude. Not only give you distance, but give you the, give you other things, other methods like uniting them together to create collections of them. Uh, and the, the important thing to remember about both geometry and geography is they don't just store one point. Is they store they can store multiple points connected together. They can store polygons. And you can even store collections of polygons. So you can get some very, very complex shapes built out of them. Uh, one of the, probably the data I work most commonly with is census data. And that's organized along tracks. And sometimes it's even aligned with postal codes so that we know uh, in a given postal code what, are, what kind of demographics are we looking at, what percentage of the population is of this racial background or whatever it is this age or what are the education levels for it. It's very uh, interesting that we can store that kind of information, the, the demographics as scalar data, and have in that same row at least a point or two the actual visualization of that or the actual data bounding that polygon. And I think that's you know, the simple latitude-longitude case. Sure, there's going to be lots of use for that. But as people really get a hold of this and they see the ability to relate shapes to other shapes, and where where does one uh, territory meet another territory, and do we see a particular concentration of people in that kind of union area? Is that an interesting thing or not? Uh, that's really where the data type starts to shine, and its ability to store lots and lots of data in the data type. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the key things is that that's right, we can store a shape in there, and in fact that shape can be comprised of multiple discrete shapes as well, even, uh, including we can have things like holes inside the shapes as well. Yeah. So maybe if you, um, potentially, what, what are the most uh, important properties of the, the data types? Well, what's the... You mean as the normal .NET type properties, or what are you really aiming at with that question? Uh, I think I was sort of leaning towards uh, the concept of 
uh, num geometries and, uh, uh, you know, things like that. So people have an idea right. roughly of what's involved in working with it. Sure. You know, when, when I'm dealing with a collection, there's going to be times that I'm going to want to iterate through the members of that collection to get what a particular member looks like. I could have a, say I have a series of points and I put them all together in a geometry collection. And I want to go through and figure, and I want to, for whatever reason, I want to go through and parse that into a set of discrete points. Well, the, there's a property there called number of geometries that will tell you that. So when I can start, I can then say, well, give me this geometry and start going through its points, or give me just that sub-geometry. As you were saying earlier, you know, we can have holes in these geometries. Well, that hole might represent a lake. And I might be, you know, I may have this great piece of spatial data that represents a state, and I may only be interested in the water areas. Maybe I'm working with a uh, watershed application, or maybe I'm drinking with a potable water application, and I want to know, where do where are my watersheds? That might that that would probably be a really good case where I have a complex geography instance and I want to walk through that and look for all of the holes and say, well that's potentially a watershed or that's potentially a water store. Yeah, I think the uh one of the things also is that in some cases this could actually amount to quite a lot of data um being oh, stored in one yeah, of these data types. And so one of the decisions that uh, in every application you'll have to make is a decision on what precision the data is stored to. Correct. So, for example, um, you were saying a lake or uh, even the uh, um, thinking of um, maybe the borderline of a country or anything, whatever it is. I mean, it, it's a case that you could go down to the nearest meter, you could go down to the nearest 100 meters. Uh, again, depending upon your perspective, uh, that would completely change the amount of data. It could. Uh, in what I see, Greg, though, is most people, when they're looking for data, they either already have the data and they're looking for a way to store and query it. They're not, there's, there's not a lot of consideration being given at least from what I've seen, about what scale and projection is being used. Uh, certainly there's some concern about what spatial reference is being used, but pretty much once they've acquired the data and gotten it in the SQL Server, they're expecting those, those chunks of data to be pretty significantly sized. And I think one of, the, one of the very cool changes in 2008 is we can now have CLR-driven objects that exceed 8K in size. Uh, that was always kind of the problem with user-defined types in 2005 is, you know, you can write all the user-defined types you want, but you really can't store more than 8,000 bytes of data in them, right? Well, in 2008, you can do that now. You can actually use large value types as your backing store for CLR objects. Well, that enabled things like geometry and geography to store these large chunks of data. Yeah. Yeah, it's made. I think it also. That's right. Def, definitely increases the number of things that you could use uh, user-defined CLR types for. Uh, when I, I remember, I talked to the guy who was the uh, the product manager for it at the time, uh, and he said that the 8K limitation was fairly arbitrary, uh, and I got the impression they just wanted to just stick a toe in the water, basically. Well, I always I was always under the impression that they were limiting it to one page. But well, okay, yeah, so I'm that's, sure that's the case. It's conceivable yeah. that that's the case, you know. Yeah, 
as they, they, they may have said very well, it's easy to work with one page worth of data, but when you get into multiple pages of data, it gets a little more hairy to work with. Yeah. So. Now, one another question I've got uh, we should talk about is the different types of data. So we did mention points and uh, polygons and so on. So the different types of things we can store? Well, you can store lines. You can store lines that are connected together to form polygons, and you can store collections of those as well. Uh, basically, anything... Uh, curves, ellipses, whatever you want, are going to be formed out of a series of line fragments. So to me, the, the big things you store, points and lines, and then composites of those as polygons. You can store either just one point, or you can store one line, or you can store one polygon, or you can store collections of them. And so the big challenge uh, then is how do we get that data in there in the first place? Oh, absolutely, right? Because, you know, unfortunately, as much as I love SSIS, they don't really give us a lot of help in getting the data in, do they? No, not at all. And so if we look the the interchange format, I suppose we should talk about what the interchange formats are as to what we can bring in and sort of parse to turn into the appropriate data types. Right. So the, the major one that... I encourage people to work with is GML as the geography markup language. There's there's a lot of data that's out there that's already expressed in GML. SQL Server, they've gone through, they've added extension methods to be able to both read and write GML. But not all the GML that's out there is actually usable by SQL Server. Uh, and Isaac Kunin, who I believe is the, the program manager for the spatial stuff, has a nice summary of that written up about what's what's allowed and what's not. Um, sometimes that's really amounts to a challenge. Uh, probably the, the dominant data source that we see here in the United States is Esri shapefile format, and there's just absolutely nothing Microsoft is shipping right now to help us read and get that into SQL Server. So you, you wind up looking for third-party tools. There are a couple out there. Uh, Morton, oh, I can't remember his last name now. But uh, he has written a shaped SQL. There's a couple of variants of that. And, uh, you know, there's certainly FME's safe to our safe tool called FME, the feature management engine. And I tell you, I, Greg, I love that product. I use the daylights out of it for bringing data into SQL Server and actually getting geometric and ge- geographic data out of SQL Server and into another format. Yeah. Like VML or Live Earth or Google Maps. Uh, I'm, I'm primarily a Google Maps guy. I do very rarely use Live Earth, but, uh, you know, it's all, it's all out there and it's all fairly easy with that tool to get from point A to point B. Uh, SQL Server out of the box, they're not giving us a lot of help with that. Yeah, I think the, uh, again, what they've provided is the basic plumbing, but, uh, there, there's layers of things above this that we're going to need. And yeah, certainly tools for, uh, importing, uh, the data is an important one. And, uh, GML, you mentioned, and, uh, the other one is the, the well-known text format. Yep. Although I, I really want to discourage people from using well-known text. Uh, while it looks like it's pretty easy to use, it, it has real performance issues because SQL Server has to parse that and then actually go through their loading process of turning it into the shapes. 
So if performance matters, probably avoid well-known text as best you can. Uh, the theme is somewhat true of well-known binary format, where the, the open geographic folks have said, well, here's a format that we can accept in binary. SQL Server still has to do a fair amount of parsing and reshaping to get that into what it uses for native format. So the, the best, fastest way to go is to actually use native format. And I uh, put an example out in my blog the other day about building a shape with .NET code and storing it in native format. Uh, and performance on that seems to be about as good as it's going to get. Yeah. The How does the size of the data compare in GML and well-known text? Um, you know, I've never, I haven't spent a lot of time looking specifically at that other than a few instances where the GML has been markedly larger. You know? Yeah, that's probably the concern I had. It's an order of magnitude. Yeah, yeah, that's, larger. that's the thing I was thinking is that when you when you start putting it in XML, I was just worried that that might then bloat out the size of the data significantly. And it's not just the fact that you're serializing it to text, right? That that in and of itself is quite a quite a neat explosion. But there's a lot of metadata that GML requires too. Uh, you know, you, describing the instance that can really make it even that much larger. Uh, I remember when I was just trying to do a simple point in GML, and I wound up with uh, maybe six or seven hundred bytes of data in GML, or six or seven hundred characters at least of stuff. And then, wow, that's that's really an inflation of the data. Um, and we were talking internally about, you know, specking our machines for the for the new class we're going to do. And this is the first time where we're where we're talking about gigabyte size data sets. For our demos and for labs, yeah, uh, and it's it's not hard to it's not hard to be in the gigabyte range with spatial data, even for fairly trivial things. Yeah. Listen, that's probably a good point to take a break for a few moments, and um, we'll then be back uh, after a short break. As well as community resources such as this podcast. SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. Uh, so, Kent, at, at the present time, is there a life outside SQL Server or something you're passionate about? Well, I uh, this summer I decided to go back to grad school. Excellent. And I'm, I'm going uh, going at nights, and uh, with the with the heavy with the heavy anectic travel schedule, it's been interesting. But I uh, decided to go back and and work on my master's in management, uh, going down a little bit less of a technical path this time, and it's, it's proven to be very interesting. Uh, primarily did it so that I could see, you know, really how can, how can we make BI a pervasive tool and really what, what are managers and what are decision makers looking for out of BI systems and to kind of learn the other side of that equation. Yeah. 
No, it's good. And so you're enjoying the uh, the the challenge of being back doing study. Yeah, it, it's strange being back on the other side of the desk. You know, mm. for so long, you know, as a student, you know, you're on, and then you go be and you go do instruction and mentoring for a while, and then you go back to being both uh, an instructor and a student. And boy, I tell you, it changes your changes your worldview when you sit on both sides of the desk about the whole process. But uh, I'm I'm very lucky. I've got some great professors that have been great to work with. Yeah, I must admit uh, I I don't miss uh, having to do that at the moment. Uh, I, I had a, a long period where I think I was enrolled for about twenty one years, um, and I I had six months off. I remember back in about nineteen eighty six, and uh, I remember feeling guilty because I was like watching TV, you know, <laughs> or something. So uh, yeah, not a lot of TV watching going on in my house these days. I. Have caught a little bit of the Olympics. Uh, been on, been, been doing more road work and and having a little bit more time where I uh, where I need to stop thinking and, and veg out a little bit. I've been watching the Olympics, but you know, there's there's not a lot of free time in my life these days. That's for sure. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, we've watched a little bit of the Olympics, uh, which are notable at the moment. Uh, been on, so it's uh, it's obviously. Uh, a key passion in Australia. I notice that uh, we always seem to sit somewhere about fourth or fifth on the medal tally, which is just completely out of all proportion for the number of people in the country. It's uh, it's uh, just completely crazy. So um, I, I think um, this year we've got about half the number of medals that China have, but they've got they've got literally sixty times the population or something or. Uh, wow. Whatever, but uh, I, I know a couple of. Uh, I think in two thousand, I think they got fifty, fifty nine. We got fifty eight, <laughs> you know, or something. So, yeah, it's uh, it's just completely bizarre. Uh, I was saying on the RD uh, regional director list uh, the other week. I, I, I wish that same passion uh, existed in a number of other areas uh, in the country as well. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, sports are easy for people to get into. But you know, really, what's amazed to me is just how uh, how well Silverlight has done. Uh, yeah. So much of the so much of the Olympics broadcast is going on in Silverlight, and there again, you know, we're looking we're barely looking at a generation two technology for that, and here we have one of the busiest websites that will that'll happen this year, running running it at its best, and it yeah. hasn't fallen apart. And it's, you know, there's sure there's bugs with it, and it's hard. You know, there's some things that make it hard to develop, but it's holding up pretty good for for the Olympics. And you mm. know, kudos to Microsoft for that. Yeah, no, I must admit, yeah, we've uh, just take for granted now that all of those things you can go and hit the sites and stream almost anything you want to see. So, yeah, how different? How different is it between China and even at the Athens Games where? Yeah, you know, you could go to a website and you could get the medal counts and all that, but there was not a lot of not a lot of live media and there wasn't a lot of media being streamed about it. And now, you know, you can get a whole screen view of things. So yeah, I, I think I think that's pretty impressive technology. Mm. Yeah, I can't draw a straight line to save my life and you know, I'm glad that somebody else does that technology because I'd be no good at it at all. But I think it's it's it shows that Microsoft really can put out a quality product. Yeah. On the- and uh, I was, was going to say the other thing I remember you were fairly passionate about was music of various types. Yeah, um, that passion hasn't changed a whole lot, but it hasn't grown a whole lot. I've been listening mm. to 
pretty much the pretty much the same same sorts of music. Although I uh, I recently started listening to a new artist. Uh, there's a an evolving genre of what in America we call rap music. Uh, it's, it's called nerdcore, and it's basically well nerds rapping. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, the, the artist I've been listening to is called MC Frontalot. Very, very interesting lyrics. Uh, you remember the old video, the old computer game Zork? Yeah. Yeah, the old info count. Well, he's got, he's got a, he's got a rap out about people still playing Zork. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's a funny video to watch and it's great music to listen to. It's just funny, but uh, it's interesting to see what I suppose he's probably 10 or 10 or 11 years younger than I am. It's interesting to see that generation combine music and technology in the mm. way it has. So maybe maybe by the year or maybe by the time SQL Server two thousand eleven rolls around we'll all be listening to Nerdcore, but you know, <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. Actually it quite intrigues me when you mention older computer games. There there's a an awful lot of people um who seem to have a passion about uh playing old, old games, and uh, it's, it's quite intriguing. I'm, the number of young kids I'm finding now that are finally uh, sitting there playing things like Pong, <laughs> you know, which uh, sort of well, fascinates you know, me. You can only play Grand Theft Auto so long before it gets, you know, before it gets repetitive. And sometimes, you know, you just need to plug in the 2600 and, and play Tank. Yeah. It may be the ugliest graphics ever, but at least it's different. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite intriguing the the number of those old games and things that run quite well, obviously on on current hardware or or that people have ported across. Um, in fact, one of the things I, I I get quite a kick out of I've got old versions of some of the different software on my machine, uh, uh, including uh, SQL Server 1.1, which uh, I must admit uh, uh, it's kind of fascinating because. Uh, uh, things like books online, the fact you can read the whole thing in about 15 minutes, you know, it's uh, uh, kind of intriguing. Uh, uh, do you have that as a VPC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I might, I might have to bother you offline to get a copy of that. Cause it's been so long <laughs> since I've seen SQL 1.1. It'd be interesting to just see. I, I, I remember installing and using it, but I, I can't remember. I can't remember last time I even saw it. Yeah, the the uh, trick yeah. with it, uh, of course, is it has to run. It was running on OS two, so uh, um, and fascinating. Uh, Greg Linwood that uh, passed it to me. I remember him saying he had an awful trouble getting it to boot at first, and uh, I, I ended up having the same problem myself. And uh, it, it it just the problem was I was giving it too much memory. So, <laughs> so. yeah, can you imagine people server having too much memory? Yeah, no, the, the operating system, OS2, uh, if you uh, you just throw it like 128 uh, meg, it uh, it won't boot <laughs> so, in a VPC. So, it, uh, yeah. Well, 40 volume. Yeah, 640K volume. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I've got a lot of other old programs. Actually, the uh, I've got a copy of VisiCalc 1, and uh, <laughs> uh, what's fascinating is it still runs really, really well, and, boy, it's fast. <laughs> so, it's... Uh, yeah. Right, you can't can't hardly keep up with it. But, yeah, I think, know, I think the program, the entire program, is about twenty-two k or something. So yeah. But you know, Greg, what's interesting to me is we're talking about software that's only twenty-two years old. Yes. And you know, in, in our lifetimes, you and I are about the same. In our lifetimes, well, we're kind of right in the middle of where the software is going to be by the time 
you and I get ready to retire, it'll yeah. be about, about 20 years from now. Think about what the software's going to look like then. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine. We, you know, we'll, be sitting, we'll be sitting around in the, in the retirement home talking about, gee, you remember how great it was when we first got spatial data and SQL Server? And, <laughs> yeah. Boy, look at them now and all the... It makes me want to go fire up management studio because, man, it really runs fast now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, dear. So anyway, well, listen, back to spatial. The We did start to touch on the fact that the tool support at the moment is a bit lacking for getting data in. Um, if you look around the place at the moment, where, where is the mo- what are the most common sort of places that you find data that's of interest? You know, for us, it's fairly easy because in the United States, a lot of data is, is owned, managed, and distributed by the federal government, and they make it fairly easy to get at uh, compared to other places, right? I'm not saying that it's uh, no barrier to entry, but it's a, it's substantially lower than it is in a lot of places. It's easy for us to get census data. It's easy for us to go to uh, maybe a municipality and tap into their GIS departments and get plates and, and know kind of where property lines are and things like that. In other parts of the world, boy, it's not nearly that easy. I was looking for just postal code boundaries for the U.K., because I wanted to be able to replicate some of those things, and you got to pay a pretty penny to get that data out of the UK government. So, yeah, what uh, uh, what a lot of the governments did, including Australia, early on, is that they had licensed. I think they they figured that this sort of data was fairly uh, uh, sort of very specialised, and they seem to have licensed individual companies to collect and resell the data on their behalf. And uh, in many cases, it, it's just horrendously expensive. Right. And I, and I think, you know, here, here in the U.S., we have a much lower barrier to entry. So we'll probably see, the, we'll probably see more use of, the, of these data types than we will in other places. Uh, but maybe, you know, that's, that might be a signal to some other governments that, hey, it's time to, to centralize that kind of data. On the other hand, there's still a lot of data in the U.S. that really does need to be centralized. And uh, even even the government is kind of going, boy, we really wish we had this data centralized for disaster planning. You know, there's there's not a consistent federal standard uh, for for emergency data. Where are police stations? Where are fire stations? What are the transportation networks connecting them? Uh, there is a there's a law saying that we need to do that, but they haven't really matured that out and made it available to the consuming public yet. And yeah, we had uh, similar things with even even basic streets and things like that. It was a very slow getting uh, GPS based things off the ground here, and and basically the the biggest hassle was who owned the data. And uh, I remember pining for the fact that when I went to places like Japan, I could just for two dollars, buy a DVD that had all the all the roads in the country, you know that sort of thing. Right. So and I, I where in their case, the the Japanese government just decided this it's far more useful for it to be just widely available. Yep, absolutely. I think that's that's very much the case. But you know, governments are going to do what governments do, and as as developers, that's just one of the one of the things that we do we deal with when we're doing business. Oh, eventually people do tend to work ways around it. It's a, it's a bit like we had locally, um, if you wanted to buy phone books, for example, uh, 
electronic versions of those. The the one monopoly company that controlled that uh, used to charge uh, unbelievable amounts of money for that. Um, and even when they finally got to mass producing it, I mean, they were still... To, to buy phone books for a, even a main city, that was still up in sort of five, six hundred dollars uh, type numbers. Um, what was interesting is that another company said, well, you know, we can fix that. And uh, they just simply picked all the phone books up, sent them to India and said, please type them in. <laughs> yeah, here in the United States, um, there's so much advertising in the phone book that the phone books are free. Right, yeah, well, the phone books were free, but it, it was kind of interesting. You couldn't get electronic versions of them. And uh, what what I thought was even funnier was that when they then came back and said, hey, the data quality of the ones that were typed in wasn't very high, uh, they said there were a right. lot of problems with it. The way they dealt with that is to send it again to another company and say, type it in again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's, there's there's nothing like manual data scrub, is there? Right? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we can have all the we can have all the fancy transforms and all that we want, but boy, if the data is not right to begin with, it's pretty hard to fix. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, locally we find uh, yeah the universities, the government, the uh, our sort of uh, equivalent of uh, like your census folk and people like that. Uh, we have Bureau of Statistics, people like that. These are all the sort of people that make data available. What I find in general is that most of them are in shapefile format uh, .shp. Mm-hmm. And probably the the biggest limitation, as you're saying, is that there, there's no tools shipped out of the box to pick those up and uh, and drop those into appropriate data types. And when I've looked at it, it it's non-trivial either, I might add. Um, but it's not ridiculously complicated, but it's, it's also non-trivial. Um, in fact, I've got a, a colleague, Masik, uh, who's um, at the moment sort of you know trying to build a little freeware uh, shape importer and so on, and a lot of people are doing this sort of thing. And uh, I, I think for a while we're going to be dependent on a number of those. No, I, I, I think Microsoft realized that there was business opportunity for the ISVs to really capture in the space. One of the things I'm surprised hasn't taken off more are, are purchasable SSIS components. Uh, I have, you know, I really thought there'd be a lot of people that'd be writing SSIS components, and they really haven't seen a whole lot of them come to market. Well, no. there's a good emphasis. Absolutely, you know, here's here's a data source for shape files, and here's a here's a data destination that'll write let you write to AML or to or to Axel files. I think so. Some some right people are gonna some right people are gonna get around and do that, and I think safe right now is pretty much king of the hill because. They've invested in doing that out of the box with their product. They were on the market early, and I think it's going to use them nicely. And of course, I don't, I don't want to see Microsoft try and do what they've done with other things where they become the only or the preferred sources because they're free. I like to see them encourage the ISU market, but at the same time, right now it's like pulling teeth. So. Listen, the other the other thing that I was thinking tooling-wise that seems glaringly missing is some way of uh, visualizing the data in Management Studio. Well, you know, in RTM, they actually did introduce a data visualizer. When you go out in, in, RT, in the RTM version, if you run a spatial query, uh, there will be a new tab that will show up in the uh, results window that's a spatial results plane, 
and we'll do some basic rendering. We'll be able to zoom and pan and look at and look at the data. So that helps quite a bit. It's not perfect, right? It doesn't do map overlays and things like that, but mm-hmm. it's a lot better than what we had before, which was yeah. well. Oh, that's good. Actually, that's that's very good. Now, a number of a number of uh, times along the way, you've mentioned the OGC. So, I suppose we should define who they are and their role. Sure, it's a it's called the Open Geographic Open Geospatial Consortium. They're a group of uh, GIS practitioners, geographical information system practitioners, that have gotten together to create standards. It's very much like the the W3C, but for geographic information systems. Cool. And probably their their uh, their uh, decision making process is a little faster than the W3Cs is. They're yeah. not they're not quite as big. Now, many of the methods uh, or things that we can call on the data types are actually defined uh, versions defined by the OGC. Mm-hmm. And so, I suppose the um, it's the ones with the ST prefix. For spatial temporal methods, yep. Yep. Those are those are ones that are defined in the spec, and we see different databases have implemented those in a fairly consistent way. There's a well-known geographic database system called PostGIS. They have a lot of those methods in it. Oracle has implemented some of them. SQL Server has implemented most or most, if not all, of them. So it's uh, it's a nice it's nice to actually have a standards body that describes how to do this work and it makes it easier then for Microsoft and for their standards to go about doing their implementations. Now, I don't want to make it sound like it was a trivial task for Microsoft to do that work. There was a lot of work that had to be done to do those implementations, but it's nice to have a standard to work with. Yeah, that's great. And and there's also a number of methods that don't have that prefix, and so they're the Microsoft extension. Right. I think that's that's probably about the safest way to assume that if you don't see the ST, it's probably a Microsoft-specific method. Other databases may offer very similar functionality, but they may call it something else. They may even call it the same thing, but it's just not it's just not part of the OGC specs. And so, one of the things, maybe if we can just uh, for a few moments wander through what you think are the most important methods on the data types. Uh, that's actually pretty hard because there's so many different things that you can do. Uh, I think the ones that we'll see used early and often will be distance, which calculates the distance between the points. Uh, touches, I think, will become more and more important as people want to know, hey, do these two objects share a common point or a common boundary? Uh, one of the one of the examples we do is in the United States, uh, there's really no way to know what area is covered by a zip code or what we call what we call a zip code, what the world would call a postal code. There's really no yeah. way to know where that is relative to a higher level of geography, like a state or a county. Uh, so sometimes you want to know, well, what zip codes are adjacent to this zip code? Well, ST touches will give you that. Uh, there's the ability to do unions and intersections and disjoints, which will, you know, pretty much as their name implies, union will put two instances together to give you a resulting instance. Intersection will give you those parts that overlie each other, and disjoint gives you, well, the parts that don't overlie each other. So 
those are those are I think those are initially the methods people will will focus on. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that uh the capabilities of those got better and better as the uh the product evolved as well. Uh, things like you mentioned uh, distance and if you look at the distance between things at at first you could do sort of like the distance between two points, but then you could do the distance from a point to a an arbitrary shape and then eventually they got it to the point where you can do the distance between two arbitrary shapes and so on. So, yeah, it's um and if you think about the computations involved in that, that's that's not trivial. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, one of the one of the things that's interesting about distance is it's the shortest. It tends to be the the distance between the nearest points. Well, howdy, that is a fairly difficult calculation for polygons uh, laying in space because you could have multiple points to consider, and you could have some that are just equally as close. So, which one do you pick? Well. With that, with that ability, it's nice to just be able to say, here's polygon one, here's polygon two, what's the distance between them? And not have to worry about, well, is this point closer or is this point closer? Of course, one of the things we don't have is the ability to do that third dimension calculation, the, the Z dimension or the height dimension. Yeah. It would be nice to have that. But, you know, right now the OGC methods don't really support it either, so maybe, maybe we'll get there eventually. Maybe the OGC will support it and then SQL Server will support it. Yeah, that's good. Actually, what's uh, funny with demographics, the uh, uh, just brought to mind uh, uh, my mother. Um, it's it's funny. The local politicians, obviously, trying to appeal uh, to her uh, with the name Low L O W. They've obviously decided she must be Chinese, and uh, uh, again, they've got some rule based thing that works that out. And uh, what annoys her is that every Chinese New Year they send her a. Uh, uh, the local politician sends her a, a, a New Year's card in Chinese, and uh, she's not Chinese. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, can she read it? Not in the slightest. And uh, and it's so uh, funny that the the effect that the politician is aiming for ends up having exactly the reverse effect. <laughs> you know, I suppose if she was here, if she was here in the states, and her last name was Low, and she had politicians sending her anything, it'd probably be a tax increase. So. <laughs> she's only getting happy to read her card over there. That's good. Well, listen, with um, with the uh, spatial data types as implemented at the moment, um, I suppose how, how uh, I notice that there are a lot of differences in the methods between the geometry and the geography. Uh, and from memory, there's quite a few less on the geography. Is that right? Yes, correct. Because it's uh, largely it's because the OGC said, well, you know, these are, these are appropriate for 2D calculations. Doing them in three dimensions would be very hard and probably not all that practical. Like for, for union, yeah, that kind of makes sense, but, uh, with the, what would be the minimum bounding rectangle for points on a convex hull? That, that gets to be really a very interesting question. Uh, does it go below the surface? Does it go? Uh, does it go above the surface? And so yeah, not not every method is available on both types. Those 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 methods that are appropriate to the type are there for the most part. Yeah. Um, Microsoft, you know, taking them bounding rectangle for for instance, there's no envelope, ST envelope for geography. So what Microsoft did is they came up with. Uh, Envelope angle, and I believe there's another method. I don't remember it right off the top of my head, uh, 
So we'll let you have, we'll let you come up with a semantically meaningful envelope over, ge- over geographies. So at least Microsoft has, has said, yeah, that's a shortcoming. We'll address it with extension methods. Yeah. A couple of other key things I found when I was doing some development with this. Uh, first up was the order that you declare the points in a polygon. And maybe if you can explain um, well, that. Poly- polygons, polygons specifically for geography matter, right? The, the ring orientation kind of tells you, is this an inner polygon that's meant to be a donut in the ring, or is this just another surface that we're exposing? Depending on how you orient it, that's how SQL Server learns if this is an interior ring or an outer ring. Yeah. So the the example that's commonly given, if you have the uh, the the shape that defines a postal code area, for example, that actually defines two areas. It defines what's in the postal code area and everything that isn't in the postal code area. Right. Or, for example, in the United in the census data we have here in the United States, large bodies of water, certain roadways. They don't have a zip code, right? Because hopefully nobody lives underwater right now, so they wouldn't be necessarily getting any mail. So what the U.S. Census does is they treat those as being XX and HH areas. And when you go to look at a zip code, you might see something like in in my part of the world, I live in zip code five seven one one zero. Well, if there's a big lake in my area, we might see the area of that lake being 577XX or 571XX for its for its uh, zip code tabulation area. Yeah. Now, I was so we were saying that the order of the points matters because basically uh, you seem to go anti-clockwise effectively to uh, contain something. Um, it's probably worth mentioning also the uh, the change that they did late in the game in terms of the order of latitude and longitude? Right. Yeah, originally that they were they were going along with kind of the consensus user opinion that, oh, it's latitude, longitude, right? No, right? GIS professionals and people that deal with spatial data think longitude first, then latitude. So they made that change very late in the cycle. I think it was really a change that, need, that they really did need to make. Uh, it makes working with so many data sources a lot simpler. So I was I was happy to see that one get made. What it does mean, though, is that many of the samples and things that were already out there, um, they may well come across problems with, um, because many of those samples were done when it was the other way around. Well, but you know that that's it's our job then as MVPs and as regional directors to get out and get the message out that hey, that's an issue you got to be aware of when you're looking at samples. Look what version that it's for. Is it for RTM or is it for CTP? And I think, you know, when we see those questions come up in the news groups, I think we have to ask that, que- that yeah. question. Are you looking at, at an example from the CTP or are you looking at an RTM example? Yeah. And listen, the other area that I did want to spend some uh, minutes on is indexing, basically. The, um, yeah. And so we're aiming to try and get some performing uh, performance out of this, and uh, so indexes uh, are the, the thing that tries to do that. So your thoughts on index? Well, maybe if you describe what sort of indexes, uh, how they get tuned, or what we can set in relation to them, and how effective you think they are. Well, I, I think what I want to say about index, it pretty much boils down to this, is 
be extremely careful with them. Um, we always assume that putting, you know, because of our experience with scalar data, we always assume that putting an index on is going to help performance. Well, that's not always the case with spatial data. One of the things that I found is uh, in the process of creating a spatial index, you're allowed to specify levels of detail, and you can go through four levels of detail, and at each level of detail, you can set kind of a granularity anywhere from low granularity to high granularity. And people assume, well, you know, if I make all four levels highly granular, boy, I'm really going to get great performance out of that. Uh, the problem is you generate so much, because these objects are so big, you generate so many rows in that index that it winds up hurting performance, and it could substantially hurt performance. So kind of my rule of thumb is when, you're, when you start working with a query, go ahead and write the query without assuming there's any index, or don't create any indexes. Get a good baseline of that. And then go ahead and create, whether you're creating a geometry index for creating a geometry data type in a column, or you're creating a geography for creating a geography data type in a column. Create it, but create it with the lowest possible granularity. Look at the results you get from a test query, and if, if you want to keep increasing the granularity at level four on up. So, for example, I'll set all four levels to low, get a reading of query performance, maybe I'll run 10 or 15 different queries four or five times, take the average, get a good sense of what the query cost is going to be and what the execution time is going to be. And then slowly I'll start from the bottom up increasing the granularity. Uh, and quite often what I find is low is about as, is about as much as I need. Well, that considerably shrinks the size of the index tables and makes it much more likely that the index will be used by SQL Server. Uh, and an important thing to understand about spatial indices is that you're probably going to have to hint them. SQL Server will tend to choose not to use the spatial index at all because it just thinks it's too expensive. You know, we've got a cost-based optimizer. It looks at using the index and says, well, this is way more expensive than not even using it. Well, that's probably true, right? It probably is more expensive to use the spatial index, but it does increase throughput considerably. So you're probably going to wind up pimping it in those cases. Yeah. Now, what are the parameters you get to set when you build an index? You can set, and again, it's coming up off the top of my mind. It's been a while since I've been in this particular space. I've been working with SSIS yeah. a lot lately. But you can specify the number of, of objects in a cell for each one of those four grid levels, and you can specify up to four grid levels of detail, and then you can specify a granularity of detail for that grid. Yeah. So the, the smallest grid you have is a 4x4, four four, and you can go up to a 16x16 16 16 grid at each level. Yeah. No, that's good. <laughs> well, listen, that's pretty much bringing us up to time, Kent. And uh, other thing that would be worth sort of asking is that uh, where will we see you around the place or what what's coming up Um um, I'm mostly going to be in L.A. and Boston for the rest of this year. I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not going to make it to pass this year. I'm kind of bummed about that, but I'm not yeah. going to make it this year. Uh, I'm going to be out doing as many local user group talks as I can. You'll be able to find me at the Heartland Developers Conferences that are happening in Omaha and Minneapolis. And then the best place is just to kind of watch my blog to see where I'm going to pop up next. Great. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kip. Well, thanks for having me back, Greg. It's been fun. That's great. Thank you.